Welcome to the new episode of Missing Bits. Here with us today we have Priscilla Sutton from the sunny or freezing national capital of Australia in Canberra, depending on when time, what time of year you visit, of course. Uh, Priscilla is 39, a member of our National Council and a peer support volunteer. She has a half-dead pot plant and is in a serious relationship with a, with a paper mache cat named La Dave. Hi Priscilla, how's Canberra today? Today, actually, it's a beautiful spring day. We had blue skies and it cracked 20 degrees. So um, We've had much the same uh, in Melbourne. It's 24 here today. Oh, that's today. great. Mm-hmm. We've, got, we've got a nasty still, little wind blowing through, though. Oh, there has been a bit of wind. We're still not ready to plant our tomatoes. We wait until the day after Melbourne Pups here in Canberra. Right. I'm not sure about Melbourne, but um, we can still get the odd frost. If it has so, to do with gardening, I've got no idea. <laughs> I don't know too much, but I do know about planting tomatoes. Actually, um, I actually worked something out a while back. It was um, We were doing some weeding, and I discovered that if something comes out of the ground easily, put it back because it's a plant. <laughs> that, that's good. That's good. If it's hard to get out, then it's a weed. Yep. That's a, that's a really good gardening ethos to have. I like it. That's about, that's about the limit of my, um, my expertise. Mm-hmm. What's so good about a chat over hot chocolate? A chat over hot chocolate? Well... I guess that hot chocolate is pretty cosy, you know. It's a it's a warm, nurturing type of drink and um, you can hold the glass and hopefully hold a conversation for a while. It's something that you should drink slowly and savour. Um, and I love being able to just go out with friends and have a hot chocolate and enjoy a good chat, good catch-up. All true. Marshmallows or no marshmallows? Uh, it depends. It depends. Sometimes, um, if I'm not in the mood for a marshmallow, I'll get one and just give it to my friend. Fair enough. It's always important. Yeah. When, whenever we go out for dinner and um, we have a, 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 a port or something afterwards, my wife always gets one so I can have two. <laughs> That's good. That's true love. You've got a good wife. You should definitely keep her. I do have a good wife. Thank you very much. Tell me about LaDave. Oh, LaDave. LaDave's a, a terrific companion. He is a paper mache cat, life-size, um, adult cat size, um, made out of old um, telephone books, uh, the best use of a telephone book I've seen in the last 20 years. That's amazing. And, um, yeah, and I actually got LaDave uh, from a friend who is an incredible artist and at uh, I'd been to her house and she had all these amazing paper mache um, animals and, um, you know, I guess creatures and characters and all sorts of things. And I said, you know, how much for a paper mache artwork? I love them. And she was really interested in some prosthetics that I'd had used as signs at one of my exhibitions where they were a full-shaped leg and painted red and with yellow text, walk this way. And so it's something I've used um, for years as signage for and, and just different promo tools, I guess, for exhibition. Sure. And so I swapped her a red leg, um, a walk this way leg for a cat. And his name is Dave, And uh, he's great because I don't have to feed him. 
Um, I don't have to come home to walk him or look after him. And he doesn't complain if I leave him alone for months on end and go travelling. It's my favourite pet I've ever had. He's great. Sounds like a great option. Yeah. <laughs> and he just costs a leg, which is pretty reasonable. <laughs> we, we, have, we have a cat and um, I can generally put up with cats. The worst part about cats is they don't grow up into dogs. And they have, they have these things called litter trays, which you have to clean out for them. Mm, and, they and, do. And she sits there and she watches me. Yeah. I find yeah. it rather disturbing. It's, I, I, I don't invite her into the while I'm thing. doing my stuff. Mm. You have to remember that at one point in time, cats, cats were gods, right? Cats we, were we, gods. We worshipped them. Yes, we loved them. They ruled the world. Yeah, they haven't forgotten. And now we scoop out their poo from boxes in the shed. Yeah, it's great, isn't it? <laughs> so, where did you grow up? Um, I grew up in North Queensland uh, in a town called Mackay, but I was actually born in a smaller town further west called Billawila. That's a great name. It really is. I love. I, I love when I sam from. Yeah, well, I love when I sam from Villawila, and people go, "What? Where?" And I say Villawila, but then if they know Villawila, they always respond, "Oh, Billo, hey!" Oh, Everyone really? calls it Billo. Yeah, it's a. I love the name Villawila, Billo. Really, so it's not spelled anything like you imagine. It's kind of like Wagga Wagga. Everyone just calls it Wagga. Yes, exactly. It's the Australian way. We try to shorten everything. It's it's the rules, really. How was it up on the northern coasts? Uh, it was good. Um, hot. I'm not a huge fan of humidity. and um, But Mackay is actually a really beautiful place. And, you know, it was... Um, I'm really glad that we grew up there and lots of mates growing up, and I have three older brothers and, you know, lots of lovely memories of mum taking us to the harbour on the weekends and, um, you know, playing in the... There were this... At the time, I, I think they've been moved now from the original place because the harbour's been developed so much, but this kind of playground with a giant Snoopy and a giant shoe from, you know, the woman who lived in her shoe and... Um, all of these great fairy tales and really good memories of playing out at the harbour at those at the playground there. Sure. How about school? School, school was good. Um, I think primary school. I I went to the same school all the way through and had lots of lovely friends and lots of people I'm still friends with today. And you know, through the power of social media, I can keep in touch with. Um, better than ever instead of just bumping into them from, you know, year to year. So uh, that's really wonderful and um, lots of really funny memories. I remember being at school and being in the, the I guess it's the back of the, the school oval um, where there were all these big scary trees with all these, um, you know, big kind of windy thick roots that would hang down off the trees and the ground and straight out of a horror film, so we all made up uh, really silly ghost stories and, <laughs> you know, the school is haunted stories, 
And um, and I also remember there was a lot of mango trees around and we used to just throw rotten mangoes at each other. Um, but interestingly, in my adult years, I am now allergic to mango. Oh. And so I think about all those years as a kid and I'm so grateful that was an allergy that came on later in life because that would have really sucked at my primary school if I was allergic to the mangoes that we used to peg at each other. Yeah, but it was good fun. Especially those mango seeds, they can really hurt. (laughs) Yes. Yep. Now, you were born without a fibula, is that right? Yes, I was. So I, out in Villawheeler, there was um, a cluster of babies around late 70s, early 80s, that were born with lots of, you know, for lack of a better term, birth defects. Um, and I was born without a fibula, so that's the, um, bone between your knee and your ankles, the outer bone, um, between your knee and your ankles. So, um, that was on my right side and I was also born with my foot, um, well, my leg was a few inches shorter and, well, not as a baby because your leg is only a few inches, but, you know, when I finished growing, (laughs) just to clarify, but my foot was also (laughs) born, um, (laughs) upwards. And like facing up. So when I was a baby, they, they broke my foot and pointed it down and fused my ankle. And so I was still a few inches shorter. Um, but they did that to basically allow me to walk on shoes. And I, you know, wore a mixture of shoes as a kid with build ups. And then as I got a bit older, I think from about age 10 or 11, I started wearing orthopedic shoes. Um, and aside from that, some vascular stuff and some heart stuff, but I was definitely considered pretty lucky and um, of, of the different babies that were born out there with so many um, health challenges. And um, and they wanted to amputate my leg when I was a baby because I think that's pretty common when you're born without a fibula. So I believe, yes. And I often see... Yeah, you know, often Paralympians actually were born with like a congenital bone thing and had them chopped off before they started to walk. And I think, Mum, I could have been a runner. That would have been great. <laughs> but <laughs> but, um, but my um, amazing, very strong mum said no, that that would be um, my choice if and when I wanted to do that. And, you know, whatever she had decided, I would absolutely respect because she's such an amazing, strong woman sure. um, and taught me, and you know, to be like that as well, which has been very handy throughout my life. And, um, and she absolutely supported me when I finally did choose, when I was in my mid-20s and just decided that's it, time to chop it off and start again. Sure. We'd had a good run but needed to try something different. I'm, t- I'm tipping up in um, North Queensland with the the average temperatures. Average temperatures up there are fairly high. Um, that there wouldn't be much opportunity to hide it either. How did that affect your body image as you were growing up? Well, I guess yeah, you couldn't hide it, and heat-wise, you you didn't want to hide any part of your body if you didn't have to. For sure. Um, yeah, Mackay. Everyone wore shorts and thongs. Um, so I always wore shorts, so everybody um, could see my leg at school and um, most of my friends uh, didn't care and it didn't affect our um, friendships or the things that we did. 
but of course, there was always going to be a couple of bullies. Um, I remember in I went to two different high schools, and the first high school that I went to, um, uh, there were these two boys who were just little mongrels, actually. They were so mean to people, <laughs> and, uh, and I was really upset one day when one of them um, called me chicken leg to tease oh. me, and I was so upset about it. Because all I could think was, man, I've never noticed that my leg looked like a chicken leg. And I was just really annoyed that I'd never thought about it and owned it. And instead of that, it was this mean kid used it as a weapon against me because it really did look like a chicken leg. And every time I see a chicken leg, you know, at a restaurant or in a supermarket or something, I just look at it and I have such a little chuckle to myself because I think, (laughs) oh, my old leg. Because it really bloody looked like a chicken leg. Because, you know, you got a thigh, one skinny bone, and this awkward little foot, you know. Anyway, so, um, uh, yeah, they, they weren't very kind. But I do remember um, quite a while ago now at our 10-year high school reunion, um, those two particular young men were not there, and they were certainly not missed. And quite a few people... Um, shared stories about how they were picked on in school. And so even though it took me over a decade after that happening, um, it I felt really normal and uh, relieved that everyone got treated terribly by yeah. them, yeah. even though no one deserved it. But, yeah, there were, um, there were, interestingly, a fair few kids at, especially my first high school, that had disability. And I think, again, I was pretty lucky. Um other kids got teased incessantly and picked on and had much worse nicknames. Sure. And it's heartbreaking in retrospect. And I think about, you know, trying to have conversations as a kid and say, hey, go on and make friends. And and I remember those kids almost becoming mean themselves and shutting people out and, um, and you know, because they were so bullied that they didn't trust anybody and... Yeah, kids can be pretty harsh, but as as the overall thing, I, I think I was pretty lucky, and I had some really terrific friends in school. That's really important. So, what did you want to be when Enjoy you left school? Well, um, I when I was in school, I started working in a clothes shop, mm-hmm. and I really loved clothes. My mum is an amazing sewer, so a lot of my childhood was you know, with her in fabric shops, which is slightly a form of torture because um, just standing around and, you know, (laughs) generation after generation suffering. But when your mum can sew, it's also pretty cool because, you know, buying fabric in itself is pretty much a hobby. So, um, So, you know, she used to make a lot of our clothes and we could be creative and do different things and, uh and then when I started working in clothes, I really fell in love with that idea in retail. So I had this dream to, you know, um, work in retail and become a fashion buyer and all these marvellous things. And I remember my mum saying to me, you'll need an office job. You'll have to sit down. Your leg won't cope. And I thought, no, stuff you, mum. I'm going to do what I want to do, as, as we all do, um, as uh, horrible teenage children. Yes. And uh, so I, you know, for a few years, 
pursued my dreams, but really annoyingly, my mum was right. And I often are. <laughs> um, I know. And even really though, annoying. like, you know, I, I've definitely had jobs where I have to stand for part of the day, and that's no problem at all. But the idea of standing all day, every day on those cement floors, mum was right. So now she has it recorded in a podcast, and I'm sure she'll play it on repeat. <laughs> Forever. <laughs> Forever. She'll play it back to me at family Christmas dinners, I'm sure. This, this last 30 seconds will just be on repeat. Yeah. <laughs> but it is interesting. Like, you know, we have our hopes and dreams, and you, you don't want anything to, to squash that. And I think um, it can be really hard when you become – an entity or any sort of disability later in life as well uh, because it can really reshape your working life and your career direction and all sorts of things. Yeah. I've, I've got to say I yeah. have a lot of respect for older amputees. Um, I had mine done when I was five and mm. I can't imagine doing it now. Mm. I just I just cannot imagine it. Yeah. Like I thought that I would learn how to walk much quicker than I did. And it only took me a couple of months, but, um, you know, you see kids, they just get up and do it, and you're like, oh, horrible children with no fear, <laughs> you know, that they're actually gorgeous little things that, you know, have no fear, and it's a whole other level of beauty. But when you're in the same boat and having to learn how to walk again, uh, and you just know that when you fall over, that's going to hurt. Oh, yeah. And, and that sort of thing, you know, that, that, that was actually one of the hardest things with um, with knowing how much pain you can actually be in. Yes, it's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Well, my my first um, my first steps on my first leg, um, I was they had me between the parallel bars. There was no physio or or anything in those days, so they they just whacked the leg on you and off you went. But they had me between the parallel bars, and they got me to stand up and and walk down the end, holding onto the bars. And I turned around and ran back, literally ran, oh. and everyone freaked, and that was it. I was off and running. Yeah, no one likes those stories, Gary. No, I know. <laughs> no, I know. That, that's why I'm saying no, I... I have so much respect for older amputees <laughs> that have that they've got to learn yeah. all that stuff all over again after after being so competent at walking and things that this comes mm -hmm. naturally to two pe people with two legs and and. Then you've got to go mm. and start all over again, and it's and it's not even walking properly. It's a different it's a different thing altogether. Mm, it is, and it yeah, it's so interesting, isn't it? Um, but uh, yeah, gorgeous little kids running straight away, hate them. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah. I, I hope that there's a few other uh, grown-up entities who will get a laugh out of that, and not think I'm horrible saying <laughs> I hate them. <laughs> well, I don't think you're horrible. So getting up to 2005, what what made you come to the decision that um, it was time? Well, I guess I'd been going pretty good with my legs. So I had this amazing uh, boot maker. I made orthopedic shoes in, in Brisbane, Paul Stockford. And he had made my shoes since I was um, little when I started wearing orthopedics. Mm -hmm. And we we worked really well together and, and I, I was walking as best I could. But I still had a lot of pain, and I found that my um, toes were getting a bit more bundled, and 
my foot was starting to curl a little bit, like I was rolling a bit different when I was walking. And uh, I was also living in Tokyo and if anyone who's listening has been almost anywhere in Asia, I would say, you understand that you have to walk everywhere. And, uh, you know, the, the books that come out about you know, why are Japanese women thin? I'll tell you, because they walk everywhere. <laughs> and <laughs> that's the true reason. Um, it's got nothing to do with diet at all. And um, and so you do, you walk and walk and walk and, and, you know, you walk six blocks because you think that's only going to take you 10 minutes, but it takes you 30. And then you get to the place you need to go and then you realise that, you know, actually you've only got to the street number and it's up six flights of stairs because it leaves buildings so old and there's no lifts or escalators so I I found so many challenges in my everyday life and uh, I remember very clearly give me the the night that I I kind of decided that that was it I was walking home from the train station and it was a really easy walk Um, it wasn't very far at all and all flat easy easy ground you know and it took me about 20 minutes to walk home and I, I really didn't take that long for most other people. And by this point in my life, I was also very fluent in uh, Japanese for taxis or taxis, you know, language, you know, turn left here, right here and, uh, you know, to get everywhere because I just couldn't walk um, very well at all. Anyway, I was walking home this one night and I remember just being in this street with the street lights were really dim lamps and I just stood there crying. I was in so much pain, like bone agony. And I thought, this is crap. I can't live like this. Why am I putting myself through all this pain? And maybe it's time. And I just, it was sort of my, as Oprah calls it, the aha moment. And I decided then and there to move back to Australia and chop my leg off. So it took me a little while. It was probably about two years from that night to the day I had surgery. Mm-hmm. And uh, because, you know, you want your support network around you. And I also went and saw lots of different specialists. I went to a particular panel in Melbourne that existed at the time, and it probably still does now, um, where lots of different specialists come together and um, assess you and your chart and basically give you options from all of their fields of expertise. Yep. And that was so valuable. It was really amazing. And it, it really did come down to the only option was to amputate yep. um, or stay as is. And I figured, well, if I amputate and it doesn't really work out for me and I end up being a wheelchair user, then I'm probably going to be a wheelchair user anyway if I don't amputate. So let's give it a go. Sure. And uh, and so that led to um, the end of November in twenty in uh, two thousand and five, and I became an amputee, chopped it off, and started again. <laughs> New life. Tell me about uh, absolutely. Tell tell me about cremation. Ah, uh, well, this is a really interesting one, and. I, um, I, because I ha- was having elective surgery, so, you know, I went in and I, 
I met the doctor and I signed the paperwork and, and then you go on a wait list and I only waited a couple of months. It was, wasn't very long at all. But in that time, you know, your mind races. It's already been racing my whole life with different things and then different racing after deciding to chop my leg off. And then once you sign that paperwork, of course you can turn back, but it makes it all very real. Yes, for sure. You basically okayed someone to chop you up a bit. So, you know, for me, all the different things I was thinking about and I was getting really anxious and I you know, was I making the right decision, you know, all of those natural things that come through. So I went to see a psychologist and basically what I wanted to get from that was some tools for relaxation, for my anxiety, how to calm down. Um, and she she was terrific. She also specialised in hypnotherapy, which I had never really experienced before. And I wasn't necessarily a big believer or a big skeptic of it either. But we had this one particular session and she would do things like talking to your body. So I had a conversation with my body and I, I remember this as clear as day, um, but it was as though I was watching it and I wasn't really, um, I don't really remember saying the things, but it was like I was, I was watching myself say them. It's, it sounds a bit hippy-dippy, I know, but... It was really an amazing experience and um, basically in this conversation with my body, my leg told me that she was really upset with me because I was chopping her off and I was giving up on her and I was going to throw her away and move on and forget all of our uh, challenges and successes and everything. So That's very sad. Uh, which, yeah, it absolutely broke my heart. I was bawling, you know, my I was... Just tears flowing everywhere, my shirt, I was holding this cushion, everything was just drenched with tears. And it was after that that I thought, you know, I don't I'm I don't want to throw her out. Like I don't want to walk with my leg anymore. But she doesn't have to go into the bin. But unfortunately the hospital doesn't just give you your leg like in a jar or something, you know. <laughs> Uh, sometimes you hear about this in America, but I'm quite surprised still um, because that limb is considered, you know, type of medical waste. Yes. Um, so I, I went back to my surgeon for an appointment and he was like, have you changed your mind? And I said, no, 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 I, I, the opposite. I actually am really looking forward to becoming an amputee, but I really want to cremate my leg. And he, at that time, had never had a patient say that to him. And um, so, you know, I won't ruin it completely because I, I did tell this story much better one day um, and I did a TED Talk and I, I talk all about the conversation with my doctor and and the process for getting my leg cremated, like actually going to the funeral home and signing the paperwork for part of my body. Um, you know, crossing out deceased person's name and writing leg of Priscilla and, you know, all this sort of stuff. So I did a TED Talk um, about it. So I'd really encourage people to, if you Google my name, it'll, it'll come up. Um, I'll, also, I'll also, in the um, in the show notes, you'll find the um, the link for it. I'll, I'll get the link and put it in there for anyone who's going to just click on it rather than having to search for it. Thanks. Yeah. But it, it was such a good experience for me because it was, like, I know where my leg is. I feel like, 
you know, um, there's closure and I don't think about what happened to her. She got thrown out, you know. And you read from time to time. I remember actually in Mackay there was when they ripped up an old private hospital, they found an amputated leg in a medical waste bag under the wow. footpath. And you just go, well, how does that even happen? That shouldn't happen. And, and so then you have all of these people, all these entities ringing the hospital saying, was that my leg? Mm. You know, I lost my leg in your hospital. So to me, you know, I feel like she was a bit safer sure. than that. Um, but it was quite a funny process, like literally funny to go through and get your leg cremated yep. um, and people's reaction to it. So, And I remember when I was going to do uh, TEDx and I spoke to a friend of mine who is also an amputee and we have shared many a drunken conversation ah. and oversharing story like together where we just, you know, there's, we don't hold back and total oversharers. And, uh, and and I said to him, you know, of all of my stories, what one should I do a, a TEDx talk on? Like, what's your absolute most favourite silly story I've ever told you about myself? And he said, oh, hands down, that cremation story. Sure. <laughs> so it's his, his fault that I did that one. But anyway, so it is a great story. And, um, and it's absolutely possible to do that and it didn't cost very much at all and it is something I highly recommend to people who uh, have the opportunity to, you know, if it's selective surgery and they are interested in that because, um, yeah, it's, it's really nice to know where your leg ends up, especially when you've been through so much together. I'm sure there's a few light bulbs going off around the place at the moment. Yes. <laughs> and you celebrate your ampuversary every year? I sure do. Um, I really love getting my friends together and, and we don't have like a big leg party. We did that before I had surgery. We had a foot farewell fundraiser. But we just, um, usually it's a dinner and we, we hang out and, um, you know, I might make a toast to my legs, but it's just about, it's more important than a birthday dinner to me. It's about just really remembering that part of my body yes. and, celebrating her and all of the achievements that we did have together. And I know some people listening will think I sound like a bit of a crackpot, but when you have had, um, you know, chronic pain for your entire life, as depressing as it can be, you also are surviving every single day with that piece of your body. And you... You almost develop like a relationship with that that limb. They become your friends. They become your enemy, and um, and it's really important that you know that that's actually something that is uh, remembered. Sure. Uh, even though you move on through much better times in your life. So yeah. So yeah, I love my anniversary, and I highly encourage friends to make me legs. Uh, leg-shaped cakes. Um, they are welcome every year. And so far, out of this is my thirteenth year, I have received one. Oh no! So for thirteen years, you know, it was on my eleventh anniversary actually. Eleven years of asking, 
you know, people think I'm kidding when I say, <laughs> hey, can you make me a cake shake like, like a leg? And they're like, <laughs> and I say, no, I'm serious. And You're finally, serious. I have this amazing colleague, Colleen, who came into work with a bloody leg cake. And I thought that was just the bee's knees. I loved it so much. Excellent. Yeah. <laughs> So you're also the creator and curator of Spare Parts, the exhibition. Tell me about that. Well, Spare Parts came about, um, sort of started about five, well, started about four years after I became an amputee and it, it probably took almost a year to get the first exhibition together. But it started because I was doing a bit of a spring clean at home and, you know, you pull your old crap out of the cupboard and you're going, oh, why do I have this jacket? You know, I don't even remember buying these shoes, all this sort of stuff. And I thought, why on earth do I have legs in the cupboard? This is insane. I'm hoarding old legs. But perhaps like what I was just saying, you know, that these that limbs almost become your friends and part of your body, the same goes for a lot of prosthetics as well. You know, you go through the good times, the bad times. Sure. And, um, and then sometimes I think we just keep them because we're like... What if, you know, every other leg I have combusts and I have nothing left and that this one I maybe I can walk on still? I don't know what's wrong with this, but we all have these weird justifications and we hoard limbs. <laughs> but at the time, I hadn't really thought about this and I didn't really know that hoarding limbs was a thing. And, and I thought, you know, well, if I get some of my really amazing creative friends to do something with them, like turn them into artwork, then perhaps that's art and that's not hoarding and I could put them on my wall because they seem to mean something to me. And the idea sort of grew from this because I couldn't choose which friends and then I realised hoarding limbs is actually a hobby almost of amputees. And uh, and from there, this exhibition called Spare Parts was born. And over the years, I've um, collected, you know, well over 100 limbs from oh amputees and clinics from all around Australia, um, America, Laos, all over the place. People have sent me limbs, um, hospitals and uh, people like me hoarding them. And something that I had never thought about until it happened was families of amputees who have passed away. Yeah. Because um, it turns out that when we cark it, our family takes over our limb hoarding and then they keep your bloody legs in the shed for another generation to suffer. <laughs> so it's hilarious. Um, but I'd never really thought about that. And then I had people giving me prosthetics, you know, um, Uncle Jim's leg, but then Uncle Jim's leg gets turned into artwork and gets, you know, a second lease on life. And then his family would come to the exhibition and see it and, have photos with it, family photos with Jim's leg, and it was actually really beautiful to see that side of things, um, which I'd never thought about. Yeah, so um, it, it actually prompted me, Gary, to put instructions in my will as to what to do with my prosthetics. Fair enough. Because, yeah, I don't have any old ones that I bought now, but I do have... Um, some really beautiful ones with artwork on it and I just want to make sure they're not in a shed for another generation <laughs> after yeah. I'm gone. They should not be in a shed ever. Yes, they shouldn't. But it is something to think about because because other people see them as a part of your body as well and they won't just turf them. Yep. 
I am, I am not one of those hoarders. I have two legs. I have the one I'm wearing and my very first one that I kept. No, I love when people have their first ones. Which is actually, it's actually made out of wood. Ah, uh-huh, yep. Mm-hmm. And it, it's kind of, it's very small. Yeah. Anyway. Do you have it um, framed or anything, Gary? Like, no, or is no, no, it no. It's, a just, it's just in the wardrobe. I, I pull it out occasionally to, to scare people with and show it off. <laughs> so I'm, no, you I'm, should get a little um, box frame, like a cabinet, like that you can open to get it out. But you should have it on your wall. <laughs> and, um, as you know, that's actually, it's a really beautiful thing to have out. And uh, and to look at more often, I, I really recommend at that. At one point, turning it into a lamp. Yeah, there's that. But just you no, know, it's your first one. Keep it pure. Yeah, I would say, and yeah, and put it put it out for people to see. I think um, I think that's actually a really marvelous thing to do because actually, then it's, gonna it's a be talking the, point. It's going to be the centerpiece of um, my fiftieth anniversary as an amputee. Ah, uh, yes. That's good. So that, and do you have a good photo? Do you have a good photo of yourself with that leg on? Uh, probably not, because that would have been up to my parents, and they weren't great at that. Uh, yeah, yeah. I was just going to suggest because other people listening might be thinking about it too, but to frame that and put it next to it or put it in the box, you know, IKEA has these great little um, box cabinets in the frame section that are perfect for tiny kids' legs because I've used them before. There you go. <laughs> so highly, yeah, yeah, highly recommend that. Yeah, it's good. We have to celebrate and embrace our bodies um, a lot more than the media tells us to do, I think. It's very important. The only thing wrong with that idea is that then I'll be lost in Ikea somewhere and you won't see me for years. <laughs> That's right. I think at 6 o'clock every night they have... Um, a truck that goes through and picks up all of the lost people, so you'll be fine. <laughs> yeah, I've been lost it's, in IKEA a, cool a few times. <laughs> yes. So what's next for Priscilla? Well, I guess spare parts has um, been a huge part of my life. So I had it, uh, I held it first in 2010 in Brisbane, and that was really popular. It became like this really open, positive conversation about um, amputee life and prosthetics. And and it was just something I never expected. I wanted to do something fun and creative and stop hoarding. And it, it turned into almost a prosthetic movement, which was great. And having so many people in the years since then tell me how even just reading an article in the paper or sharing that at work has completely transformed their life and how they're louder and prouder and all sorts of things um, as an amputee, you know, you just can't, um, you can't, make that up and you can't also once it started make it go away so uh, spare part has been held twice more um, so after that I took it to London during the Paralympics in 2012 and then um, a year after that I was actually leaving Brisbane and as I was packing up I thought oh my god I'm not just hoarding my own legs I'm bloody hoarding everyone else's now and I <laughs> had a dozen left in the shed and so I put on a small exhibition, just didn't collect any more, just wanted to clean out the shed. And um, and in doing that, raised money for one of my favourite charities. So uh, not an Australian charity, but um, one in Laos called Cope. 
which is the only prosthetic clinic in Mao, and they, they're an incredible organisation. So we raised enough money for about 40 prosthetics for amputees which, over cool. there, which is terrific. Um, and, you know, and so since then, I have a number of artworks that get shared to different exhibitions around the world. Um, I can tell you, uh, you know, the wine box at the Australia Post, Yep. Uh, fits an arm really well. Wow. <laughs> um, yeah, and uh, and the wine boxes at removalist companies, where they sell all the boxes, um, ones that fit multiple bottles, uh, fits a below knee leg really well. So I've, I've sourced all sorts of boxes around me over the years to be able to send these things. And, um, and so I think, you know, it would be good to do one more really big, exhibition and it would be really nice to have that perhaps in Tokyo for the Paralympics there. Um, I think that the Paralympics are going to be a game changer in Tokyo more so than they have ever been for any other host country before. So it would be nice to take it back to my old home and, you know, where I decided to amputate my leg and almost a full circle for me. So fingers crossed I can make that happen. Um, and, you know, if you're interested in keeping in touch with their parts, there's uh, Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. So I'll make sure you've got those links, Gary. Yep, um, I'll put them in the show notes for people to them. have a look at. That'd be great. Yep, and, um, you know, and just take a look. You know, I even when I don't have an exhibition going, I like to share interesting creative things to do generally with prosthetics sometimes more broadly with disability on all of those pages. So um, take a look. But I think that that will be the next step for Spare Parts if I can make it happen. Sure. So we'll see. <laughs> I've been Just before we finish up, I've been asking mm. people for words of wisdom or a life motto or whatever, something that gets you through your dark times or something you can relate to someone else that might set off some light bulbs in other people's lives. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a good one. Um I would say for the new amputees out there, so you might be still in hospital and you're listening to podcasts to work out what the heck your new life is going to look like. Um, you have to be patient. You have to listen to what people tell you. And there are two things that you really have to do. One of them are your glute exercises because we've never really talked about it before when we've had two legs, but you really need your bum to walk. Yep. So you've got to do all of those glute exercises that the physioterapist wants you to do. And the other thing is like about... <laughs> and I shouldn't throw those words around, but it still feels fitting um, for some of the physios I've met. And, and the other thing is about desensitizing your stump. So, you know, get, get one of your friends or family to go to the local fabric shop and you want something, a little kit from a, a cotton ball right up to Velcro, you know, linen in between, little samples of fabric that you can gently rub on your stump to desensitize it. And I think that's so important because you won't be able to be fitted for a prosthetic until your stump is ready. Yep. It's not about yep. you and your um, the the courage you may have or the readiness you may feel 
or, you know, how impatient you might be feeling that to get on with the rest of your life. All of that, none of that matters unless your stump is ready. And the best thing that you can do is to desensitize your skin. Um, and the amputee clinic in your hospital can help you out with that as well. And I think that's really important. Um, and I think, you know, some words of wisdom for some of the um, other entities that have, you know, we've been around the block a few times. I don't know. I guess maybe it's just the same as my general advice that I like to give anybody is that you just need to choose your battles. Yes. You know, absolutely choose your battles and um, some days are going to suck and some days are going to be amazing there's, and that doesn't about, matter if you're an entity or not. There's about a million parents out there listening to this right now just nodding their head. Yeah, choose your battles, you know, yeah. and, and if you day feels crap, turn off everything, turn off your TV and, and your phone and just go outside and get some fresh air and just um, choose your battles, you know, there's, we're really overstimulated these days, we have so much thrown at us from every different angle, more than any generation ever before, sometimes you just have to turn that tap off That's and uh, choose your battles, yeah. Listen to more podcasts, hey, Gary. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. There's some great podcasts out there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Priscilla so Sutton, you thank I you so much for your it. time. So, Thank you for being so open with us. And I look forward to Canberra next year because the conference is on in Canberra and I look forward to getting up there yeah. um, and sharing maybe a cup of hot chocolate and a natter with you. Uh, that sounds great. I can't wait to meet everybody who's going to get to Canberra next year. It's very exciting to have and an event. It is a really in, nice place. If, if anyone listening has not been to Canberra before, be prepared to have your eyes open because it is a lovely place with lots of things to do. Oh, yes, Canberra is my utopia. And um, if you're not sure what Canberra is like, I describe it as um, a regional sized population with metro infrastructure. So there's wide open roads, there's hardly anyone on them. You can do 80Ks and you can park out the front of where you want to go. Yep. It's great. It was, I've spent spent a very nice time up there a couple of years ago and it was a revelation to me. That's awesome. Well, we can share that with everybody uh, next year. Absolutely. So thank you once again um, and thank you everyone for listening to Missing Bits. Um, Look into the, the... comments below the talk and look for the links to click on. Um, Remember to rate and download and comment on iTunes. Um, It is really important and hopefully you can listen to us wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks Priscilla and bye. Thanks, bye.